I mean, I'm just saying, if the cook at Waffle House doesn't have any tattoos, the food is gonna be trash. Bro, you know I'm right. I need my cook to have at least one neck tattoo and his hat cocked to the side while he's cooking. If he got that neck tattoo and his hat cocked to the side, you know them waffles about to be buttery. Woo. All right, I gotta go do my podcast, bro. I'll talk to you later. All right, bro, holler at you. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Sorry, I just had to get off the phone with one of my friends having a very interesting conversation about where it is best to eat late at night for a meal. I say Waffle House, he said IHOP, and we just kind of was going at it back and forth about that. But let's get on topic. This month is Mental Health Awareness Month. I wanted to approach mental health in this episode, but more specifically in children and adolescents. A survey done by the National Institute of Health published in 2018 stated that in 2016, 13% of adolescents from the age 12 to 17 years old suffered from one or more major depressive episodes. 70% of those individuals suffered severe impairment, but less than 50% actually received treatment. What does that mean? Of the adolescents suffering from depression and who have severe impairment, a majority of them aren't receiving treatment. Therefore, they continue to suffer through depression without getting the proper help that they need. It is recommended by the Academy of Pediatrics to screen all adolescents from age 12 to 18 years old for depression. So how is an adolescent screened for depression? Great question. The most common assessment tool is a questionnaire. Question, tell me what you think about me. I buy my own diamonds and I buy my own rings. Man, that's a Destiny's Child. In a voice, you're not gonna start singing Independent Women by Destiny's Child. This is not the proper time. We're talking about depression symptoms. We've got to be serious. <sighs> okay, all right. I won't, I won't sing Destiny's Child anymore. All the women who are independent, throw your hands up at me. All the honeys who make them get out of here. All right, all right, I'm out, I'm out. The questionnaire is something called the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, which is modified for teens and called the PHQ-A. The PHQ stands for Patient Health Questionnaire. The questionnaire asks certain questions based upon symptoms that have occurred in the last two weeks. Questions include, have you been feeling down, depressed, irritable, or hopeless? Have you had little interest or pleasure in doing things? Trouble falling asleep or sleeping too much? Those are some of the questions that the questionnaire asks. And it asks on how many days of the week that you have those type of symptoms. Is it every day, very few, most days? It's all based upon how that person is feeling the last two weeks. It also asks questions about thoughts of suicide. I provided a link to the questionnaire in the show description, so check it out and see what it looks like. Mind you, this survey helps in the assessment of depression. If a child scores high on this questionnaire, it's not definitive that a child has depression, but it is more than likely that they do. Other factors have to be taken into account, such as normal child behavior, grief, and other items. Risk factors for depression in adolescents can be categorized into three categories biological, psychological, and environmental. Biological items include being overweight, 
having a chronic illness such as lupus or cystic fibrosis and family history of depression. Those are biological items that can lead to increased risk of depression. Psychological items include body dissatisfaction, low self-esteem, less attachment to parents and peers. Environmental factors include academic difficulties, being bullied, experiencing or witnessing domestic violence, sexual abuse, natural disasters, and low socioeconomic status. There are more risk factors in each category, but I couldn't go through all of them, so I just gave y'all a couple of key ones from each category. So that's your quick initial rundown on depression in adolescence. In the interview portion, we'll discuss more and in particular with younger kids. So if you have kids that are younger than the age group that I was talking about, we're gonna talk about that more in the interview portion. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Taya Johnson. Dr. Johnson, MD, is a native of Louisville, Kentucky. When you say Louisville, you gotta say it with that draw, that Southern draw, like I mentioned in another episode. It's not Louisville, it's Louisville. So she's a native of Louisville, Kentucky where she completed her undergraduate and medical school education at the University of Louisville. She completed her adult psychiatry residency training at the University of Miami, her child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship training at the University of Louisville, and then her forensic psychiatry fellowship training at the University of Cincinnati. This is an educated black woman here. She is currently board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in Psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and Forensic Psychiatry. Oh, you get it, girl. She recently relocated to Tyler, Texas to become a Child and Adolescent Psychiatry faculty member at UT Health Science Center at Tyler. If anyone knows about child psychiatry, it is Dr. Taya Johnson. Y'all heard her resume, she knows a lot about child psychiatry. Y'all will love her raw and vibrant personality and all the information that she gives on anxiety and depression and mental health in children and in adolescents. So let's get it started with discussing mental health in children and adolescents. Hope you enjoy the interview. So welcome to another episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I have one of my good friends here, Dr. Taya Johnson. She graduated medical school before me. She probably doesn't know this, but she has always been an inspiration to me as far as her success in medical school and stuff furthering on. So it was always nice to see a nice black physician ahead of me who was accomplishing things and always served as an inspiration. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson, who's a little bit upset at me because I was late on the podcast. So I've already been fussed at, ladies and gentlemen. So hopefully she'll be nice to me as we proceed further. Well, you might you might have got some points back when you said that I was I didn't know that about the inspiration thing. That's nice to know. So you might have got a little bit of brownie points. I might not be so mad. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Got some brownie points. All right. So Dr. Johnson is a psychiatrist. She also specializes in dealing with children and adolescents. So one of the things that I thought would be important is to discuss anxiety and depression in children and adolescents. I don't have any children, but I have a lot of friends who have children and some of them have adolescent children as well. So I thought it was important that we start having these mental health discussions more so geared towards parents 
and what to look for in their kids when they start showing signs of anxiety and depression. So Dr. Johnson, if you wanna kind of expand on that, what are some of the signs that parents should look out for with anxiety and depression in their children? So that's a really loaded question um, because dealing with children and adolescents, they present differently than adults do when we're thinking about anxiety and depression. And so lumping them together is kind of, like I said, a loaded question. So I'll Mm -hmm. separate them out. The thing is, so with kids younger than 10, it's really hard to tell what's going on with them because their anxiety looks like depression, looks like ADHD, looks like trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So in younger than 10, it's really, really hard to tell the difference between them because they can look so similar. So you might have, you know, a child that's not able to sit still and you might think, oh, well, they can't sit still. That's ADHD. And it could be related to anxiety. You may have a child that struggles with, you know, remaining focused or on task. And it's not that they can't focus or whatever. It's that they're so anxious in their mind, they're having trouble paying attention, but that could get misdiagnosed as ADHD. So there's a lot of things that is is really hard to tell, especially in kids younger than 10. I usually use this, I have this graphic that I usually show parents when I'm talking about anxiety in kids because it can come in different ways. And this graphic by no means is exhaustive, but I use it as a guide to help to help parents. One of the things on that graphic is that anxiety shows in ways of a desire to control people and events. So trying to be controlling of different things. So if you have a kiddo who, you know, you tell no to, but they, you know, go out of it because they don't know you know, what's happening or what's going on. Like I used to have one, one patient that would get really, really upset if she didn't know the schedule of the day, like for the entire day, she had to know every morning, mom, what are we doing today? And she had to know the entire schedule. And if that's, if anything was off that schedule, she would, you know, freak out and have outbursts. And the parents were like, what is going on? And that was just her anxiety, um, a manifestation of her anxiety. Another thing is having a hard time getting to sleep. So some kiddos will have trouble falling asleep because they're anxious their minds got a lot of things going on, you know, overthinking, so they have trouble sleeping. They can feel agitated or easily angry when they're anxious, so, you know, on edge, very jumpy. They can show defiance and other challenging behaviors. That's a that's a common one because people automatically assume, oh, opposition defiant disorder because they have a kid who is difficult to not following the rules, not following directions. And that's not necessarily what could be the case. That could be anxiety that's underlying that issue and not oppositional defiance disorder, having a high expectation for themselves in in school, work, or in sports. So, you know, perfectionism and stuff like that. Avoiding activities or events. So if you have one that refuses to attend school, it may not be, they may say, oh, I feel sick today. I have a stomach ache. Well, it might not actually truly be a stomach ache. It may actually be that they're anxious about going to school. They're anxious about being around people. And so they say that they're having a stomach or they may actually have a stomach ache because of their anxiety about going to school. And that's the next one. Pains like stomach aches and headaches. That's common. And usually the kids will present to primary care offices instead of coming seeing a psychiatrist. And they'll, you know, complain of stomach aches or headaches. And they'll get, you know, these full workups for migraines or for different gastrointestinal diseases and they don't have any everything is negative and so usually that could be a a physical manifestation of their anxiety again i spoke on struggling to pay attention and focus that's another one intolerance of uncertainty so that kind of goes back to the desire to kind of control people and events need to know what's going on crying and difficulty managing their emotions sometimes you know 
kids, like I said, will have outbursts and you're like, what is going on? And it's related to them being anxious about something more so than, you know, them actually being sad or something like that. Over planning for situations and events. So trying to, again, know every single detail that they can about something um, and then feeling worried about situations or events. So a kiddo who constantly asks, so what, what happens when you do this or what happens when you do that? Or mommy, are you going to come back and pick me up? Are you, are you going to, are you going to be back here today to get me from school? I know with COVID time, not everybody's going to school, but when we were going to school, that, that was a common thing of anxiety in, in little kiddos. Now in older kids, you know, over 10, you know, you can see anxiety much is similar in the ways that adults have anxiety, but they can still look those same ways I just named. So it's not actually very different for adults either and adolescents but as far as so that's mostly anxiety right Mm -hmm. so then specifically to depression specifically with adolescents so that above 10 year old age range the most common sign of depression i won't say the most common but the most common that is not like adults Mm -hmm. is irritability teenagers are usually more irritable when they're depressed more so than sad and and crying spells and things like that they're usually more irritable and just like snappy and now it's kind of hard to tell if, if they're you know normal teenage behaviors because teenagers can be little um I won't use the word I was about to use but <laughs> they can be you know difficult at times and so um it's kind of hard to tell sometimes if that irritability is because of depression or if it's because of you know just teenage hormone you know that age group you know defiance that they automatically have it developmentally in that age group so it's sometimes kind of sometimes kind of difficult to tease out but overall that's usually one of the most common signs that we see compared to adults is that in adolescents it's more irritability now you can still have issues with sleep you know you can see you know failing grades you know being more withdrawn staying to yourself which is kind of hard to tell especially now times with teenagers because teenagers stay you know stay on their phones a lot they stay in their rooms a lot but if especially if that's a change in behavior to where they started doing these things where they weren't you know, they were more outgoing than now they've become more withdrawn. Those are things you should look for. But even still, even if they are being withdrawn, you know, and they've always been that way, that's still something that you could still, you know, try. it could still be a sign of depression in addition to, you know, some other signs or symptoms. But those are some signs. Changes in appetite. That's, mm-hmm. that's another that's another sign either with overeating or undereating. Usually depressed kiddos usually overeat. I won't say it's like a, you know, 100% thing, but most of the time they usually overeat when they're depressed and when they're anxious, they usually undereat because they have, you know, like their stomach is upset and stuff when they're anxious. And so, but again, that's not hard, fast rules. You can still have someone that's depressed that undereats as well. But those are usually, you know, some of the issues. Now, people always bring up, you know, well, what about suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation? While that is a sign of depression, that's not the only, that's not... Suicidal ideation does not mean that that person is depressed. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? So just because someone has suicidal ideations or has, you know, made cutting attempts or anything like that, self-injurious behaviors, they may not necessarily be depressed, but depressed people can have suicidal thoughts or the cutting behaviors, the the self-harming behaviors. But it doesn't mean that just because they engage in those behaviors, that automatically assumes that they're depressed because some people make that misconception a lot. Right, right. So kind of like what you mentioned earlier, like it's hard to kind of differentiate between kids just being kids and do they actually have something going on? So 
What do you look for as far as like in a psychiatrist that differentiates between the two? Is it the pattern, the concentration of amount of things that they're doing to differentiate between like, this is just a kid being a kid. This is just totally normal. Like, oh no, this is something that we should be concerned about. So for me, that's, that's pretty much what I'm doing when I'm getting my, when I'm doing my first evaluation, which you know, to be honest, that first evaluation, I may not know, you know what I'm saying, exactly what's going on because, I'm, you know, it's time limited. So I may not be able to get all the information that I need to get. But the way that I'm able to differentiate that out is by the questions that I ask and the responses that I receive from those questions. And so it's kind of hard for me to tell you, like, in this setting, kind of what I do or how I go down those paths. It's kind of one of those things that when I'm in, when I have an appointment with a patient, based on their responses, that kind of guides my questioning to get to the answers to help determine, okay, it is, you know, I think it's more so this happening or I think it's this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I have to go through that actual interview or, you know, that assessment. Mm-hmm. And then I will, you know, change my questioning based on the responses that I'm receiving. So it's kind of hard for me to tell you how I know I just after doing this for so long and, you know, having the training that I have, I'm able to kind of change my line of questioning to help guide me to which one is more likely. But again, especially with the younger kids, it is really hard to tell. And sometimes I specifically tell parents, I don't know what's going on here. It could be this, this, or this. So, you know, let's start with, you know, the most common or something that can be easily treated that we can determine if the medications or whatever the treatment is, therapy, whatever is helping. And then we can kind of go from there and be like, nope, it's not that because this didn't work or that didn't work. It's not all the time that I know 100% what's going on either. So sometimes it's difficult for me as well to know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I know it's probably a lot about setting expectations for as parents and letting them know that you're not going to necessarily get the diagnosis or an answer at the first visit that you come to see a psychiatrist, no matter what the age of your child is. It's going to take a lot of different sessions, a lot of different questioning for like to the child and also to the parent to kind of figure out what's going on with them specifically. Right. And even when I come up with a diagnosis, that can still that can change. And which, you know, sometimes that makes parents kind of confused or whatever, because they'll be like, well, I went to Dr. So-and-so and they said my kid had this. And now you're saying my kid had that. And I'm like, well, things can change based off one their line of questioning. They might have thought it was X. But after mm-hmm. I've seen you all, you know, a few times and now I think it's Y. Or if that if I'm the first psychiatrist they've ever seen, but we start off with X, but then we end up at Y. Mm-hmm. After seeing it for a while, you know, I just kind of explain, you know, things change when I have more data that helps guide me to if I need to keep it the same or if it if it needs to change. Right, right. So do you think people understand how difficult it is to treat mental health overall? Like for me as a family medicine physician, like if you come in with a high blood pressure, I'm like, oh, that's high blood pressure. I can give you this, that, change your diet, get it down. But mental health is not the same aspect. Not at all. And people do not understand how difficult it is. And it makes it seem, I think because of the way that psychiatrists have been kind of pressured to kind of go into a a medication management type role instead of the full role that we are trained to do as psychiatrists, which is a combination of medications and and therapy. I think that's what makes people think that our job is easy. And so, you know, you have a lot of folks out there. I'm not going to 
say specifically what groups of people, but there's a lot of people out there who think that they can go and become a, you know, psychiatrist, child psychiatrist specifically after having, you know, 500 um, shadowing hours after they get their little degree and stuff, and then they can treat children or the whole lifespan. And it's like, no, this is not, this is more detailed than that. And I, that's why part of the reason why I went into psychiatry is because all the other fields of medicine to me seem boring and cookie cutter because you, you come in, like you said, high blood pressure, you you start with this. And then if that doesn't work, you go to this or whatever. With mental illness, it's not like that. Like you could come in with, again, whatever symptom, and that could be a depression symptom or could it, it, be, it could be a trauma symptom or that could be ADHD or it could be a multitude of things. And I have to tease out and figure out which one it is. And then once I do that, it still ain't no guarantee that the medicine that we try is going to work on you. And, you know, it might take us five, six different medication trials. So... Practicing psychiatry is very, very difficult, but people think it's easy because they think, oh, you walk in, you see a psychiatrist, they prescribe medicine, you walk out the door, but you come back to see them, they only talk to you for 15 minutes and then they're back out the door. And it's like, no, it's way more detailed than that. Right, right. I'll try not to shed a tear because she said I'm cookie cutter over here with blood pressure. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that's I mean, that's just what it is to me. Like, I love peas, but, you know, doing well child checks. And seeing asthma all the time was boring to me. Like, I need some excitement, and that's where I got it with the child site. It's all right. I like cookies, so I won't get through it. <laughs> all but it. there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, tell about how you approach medicine as far as a child psychiatrist. You kind of got into it a little bit, medication versus therapy. Like, what do you see as more the added benefit of those two? Or is it just the whole overall package, like kind of what you mentioned? Because I always tell my patients personally, I don't like, because they come see me, of course, as family medicine physician, like anxiety, depression, ADHD stuff. My goal is not always to throw medication, medication, medication. My goal is personally like, some. you just may need to talk this out. Like you don't need to have medication all the time. So like, how do you approach it? So I approach it in a very similar way. Um, as a psychiatrist, when I when people come and see me, I tell them on their first visit, I just because you walk in my door and you think that you're going to receive a medication because you're seeing a psychiatrist and not a psychologist or a therapist does not mean that you're going to get prescribed a medication. Mm-hmm. Just because you walk in my door doesn't mean that I'm that's what's going to happen because I don't believe that a medication fixes the issue. It doesn't. Now it can help you be able to cope with different things. It can help you, you know, kind of get through, you know, if your emotions are are struggling or whatever, you may get some benefit out of medications. The, the exception to that is ADHD. Usually ADHD is very difficult to treat without medications. Now, first line treatment is behavioral strategies, but if it's severe ADHD, it's no go. You got to use medicine. Other than that, though, pretty much all of my patients, I tell them, if I don't recommend that you do medications, I'm always going to recommend therapy. Therapy is always going to be helpful. Therapy is always going to be beneficial. Even when I do prescribe medications, I make sure I tell my patients to get therapy. If they don't have therapy and they're only on medication and they come to me saying that the medication not working, I'm going to tell them, well, what are you doing in your life? Because they expect they take this pill. Oh, I'm happy all the time. I'm never anxious anymore. Everything is gone. And it's like, no, that's not how this works. It Mm -hmm. can help lessen those symptoms. But you still got to do your part, which is going to therapy and actually doing what the therapist tells you, because that's the other part. Mm-hmm. People think, oh, well, I got a therapist, I go. Okay, but what do you do outside of therapy? Do you do, mm-hmm. do you work on the things you talk about in therapy when you're outside of therapy? No, mm-hmm. they don't do that. And I'm like, you know, 
you have to do your part as well. The therapy is not going to work by osmosis just because you show up in your therapist's office. Mm-hmm. So that's what I tell them. That's my approach to it. I'm always recommending therapy. Research has shown, you know, especially for a depression in adolescent, mm-hmm. that combination treatment plan. So therapy and medication is the best for anxiety and depression specifically, but it really goes across any mental di- you know, mental health diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So let's just take an example of like, a little girl, let's just say she's eight, looks like she has the symptoms of being anxious. How would a therapist kind of approach her? Or what would be the benefits of her having therapy at such a young age for that type of demographic right there? Well, usually in kids and in, in therapy for anxiety, I mean, it depends on the therapist. So, you know, everybody does things differently. But the mainstay therapy that works like for anxiety, like you spoke of, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And you can do that with young kids. And it's that's a combination of doing kind of, you know, helping them to learn how your thoughts affect your emotions, which affect your behaviors and how those are all connected. And some books draw it in a triangle, some in a, you know, a circle that connects and you know doesn't end either way however you draw it your emotions your thoughts affect your emotions which affect your behaviors and it's all connected and so Mm -hmm. if you have a good cognitive behavioral therapist that can work really really well with a young kid through those processes they can do a lot of make a lot of ground without medications for their anxiety Mm -hmm. because they'll learn how to when those negative thoughts negative thoughts, negative anxious thoughts come to their mind, they'll learn how to stop those thoughts, reframe them to where they're a positive thought so that they can have a positive emotion so that they can have a positive behavior instead of having the negative thoughts causing the negative emotions, causing the negative behavior. It's very, but CBT works very well in, in, um, in kids and adolescents. Okay. Let's see, like, how much does mental health as far as with what's going on with a parent affect children as well, causing them, like, a, if a child's parents hasn't handled their own mental health, they have their own anxiety and depression, how much of an effect does that have on the child? A lot of effect, actually. So, you know, research has shown, you know, even when, when babies are, you know, in utero and mom is not having treated mental illness, that can affect the fetus, you know, after the baby is born and everything. And then that's, that continues with once kids are in the home with their parents. And so some of it can be learned stuff, you know, and some of it is just, you know, if mom, like, especially in a toddler, infant or toddler, if mom has her own depression, mom has her own anxiety and is not able to build that bond or connection with their child, that's going to affect the child because they are not receiving that attachment that they need to receive for healthy bonding, you know, between mom and baby. And so that can, you know, have consequences later on in life, we know. And then even when the kid, like say, you know, mom never had those issues when they were little, when they were like an infant or a toddler, but when the kid is like eight or 10 years old and mom is starting to have anxiety or depression issues, that can affect the children as well because they sense that. They they sense that in them, they themselves can start to feel symptoms of anxiety or symptoms of depression. I had one kid that I saw him, I loved that little boy, but he was anxious as I don't know what, but mom was super anxious too. And I would have to tell mom, like, mom, you got, I'm seeing your baby and he's super anxious, but you're also super anxious too. And y'all anxiety are feeding off one another. That's why y'all keep clashing the way that y'all do because he's anxious because you're anxious. So you got to get treatment for your anxiety. And then that's going to help 
the treatment that we're doing for him for his anxiety, that's going to get better. But as long as you remain, you know, high anxiety level, he's going to remain at that level as well. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of recognize that as far as like your patient interactions when people come and see you, let's just say like a couple of visits? Are you usually just, let's just take an adolescent, 12 or 13 year old, trying to assess them anxiety, depression, whatever mental health that they have going on. Are you bringing the parents in the room to have discussions with them too? And also kind of like evaluating them a little bit and, but mostly focusing most of your attention on the actual kid patient. So the way that I do it is for my kids, my little kids, I have parent and kid in the room. Most of the time with the little kids, I kind of just let them play on the floor or color or whatever while mom or whoever's talking to me. And I kind of, I can multitask. So I kind of watch, kind of see what the kid is doing, kind of pay attention to how they're playing, how they're coloring or whatever, how, you know, looking at the interactions between parent and child while I'm talking to parent. And then I may, you know, ask the kids some questions, but you know, if they're like a six year old, they can't really answer a whole lot. So most of my questions for them are like, what's your favorite color? What what you like to do? You know, things like that, just to, you know, kind of build rapport and have them get comfortable with me by talking about things that they like. When they're older, especially like adolescent age, usually the parents will ask me, do I want them to come back? And I tell them that it's the kids, you know, the kids choice. Usually the depressed kids don't want the parents to come back. And then usually the anxious kids want the parents to come back is what I've noticed most of the time. Either way it goes, it doesn't matter to me how how they want to get it done. There are certain questions that I will ask the parent to step out away, you know, for like when I'm asking about, you know, sexual history questions or substance use questions. I will ask the parents to step out during that time if they're in the room for the other questions, just so that I can get truthful answers from the kid and let them know, you know, I need to know the truth to this. And then we could if you depending on their responses, you know, we, we have to have a conversation with your parents about this or whatever. But I do try to, you know, let them know that they do have some autonomy to be able to discuss stuff with me without their parents. But when the parents are in the room, I can kind of tell if there's an anxious, if I'm dealing with an anxious parent, I can tell because of their interaction with me, either the way they answer questions or the way they ask questions or the things that they ask or kind of just, you know, the, the anxious parents, they're very, very intense. Like, they have a question about everything. They're the parents that call you a million times after you've been, after you've explained everything to them while they're in the office. <laughs> they call you a million times, ask you to tell them the same instructions all over again. Or they're the ones that are, you know, making, they'll make an appointment anytime there's any little thing that changes in their child. They're, they're, they're getting a, another appointment on the schedule, even if you just saw them. So, you know, I pick up on signs like that after seeing somebody, you know, Sometimes I can see that stuff in the first visit. Sometimes I can't, but usually over time, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is anxious mom. So I kind of, kind of, you know, talk to her and, and coach her through things a little differently mm-hmm. than, than other parents sometimes. Right, right. What can parents do at home, like for the environment for children that are anxious and depressive? Like what can they do personally to make the environment better for the children? So that's a loaded question. But first of all, you know, do the best that they can with being a good parent. I think that's important. And, and taking care of their own mental health will, that's one of the main things. Taking care of their own mental health will help them take care of their children's mental health. Because again, children can sense that children can and are affected by their parents' mental health. So if the parent is able to, you know, be calm, not anxious, you know, no depression, anything like that, or if they do have those things, getting their own treatment so that they can get better from those things. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the, the one of the best things that they can do. 
otherwise, you know, being loving, but, you know, also having boundaries with your kids, right? Because if you let the kids do whatever they want to do, how they want to do it, whenever they want to do it, then that's not helping them with anything. And sometimes anxious parents let the kids kind of do whatever because they're like, oh, I don't want them mad at me. It's like, no, they have to learn how to cope with different things. So you're going to have to have those boundaries. So I think that's another thing is being loving, but while also having set consistent boundaries, because that's going to help them in the long term. You know, kids can't get what they want as little kids, everything they want as little kids. And then when they grow up to be adults, they don't know how to handle rules and regulations because, you know, their parents set the set the precedence that they can do whatever they want when they were little. And so they mm-hmm. expect the world to do that. That's not, that's not real life. And so that sets them up for failure. So I think that's another thing is just while being loving, being also consistently consistent, have consistent boundaries with the kids, you know, limitations on different things. And, and I think that will help also talking to the kids. <laughs> like mm-hmm. some people don't talk to their kids, like, at all. Like they don't, they don't know anything that's going on with the kids. So talking to their kids, trying to have, you know, dinner with them every day or not, you know, as consistently as you can, because I know with work schedules and stuff, it can be kind of hard, but spending some kind of time talking to the kid. How was your day? How, what did you do today? You know, just, just talking so that the kid can be comfortable with talking to them so that the kid will feel comfortable talking to them about anything that comes up. If they start feeling anxious, depressed, whatever would also be a good thing as well. Right, right. My, my mom and dad would always ask me, how was your day? It would irritate me after a while, but then it would be one of those things like I would get used to it. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't happen, I would feel funny if it didn't happen. Like nobody asked me how my day was. Like, right, right. But it's, and that's, and that's common too. Like most of the time teenagers are like, oh my God, why do he keep asking me questions? Quit asking mm-hmm. me, but they really appreciate it in the end. It's just, you know, they might be annoyed at the moment, but in the end, they actually end up appreciating it. Well, that's it for the first part of the interview with Dr. Taya Johnson. As mentioned earlier, there will be a part two, but I really hope you receive some good information in part one. Remember that anxiety and depression is very prevalent in children and adolescents. It also shows up in different ways as Dr. Johnson mentioned. Therefore, make sure you get your child properly assessed to get an accurate diagnosis. Is this my child being a child or is there something else going on wrong? So make sure you get your child properly assessed by a mental health physician. As I mentioned earlier, there are multiple risk factors that can contribute to the development of depression, including low self-esteem, being overweight, and socioeconomic status. Don't forget to check out the PHQ-9 questionnaire in the show description. You might want to fill out one on yourself to see where you are mentally. Gotta make sure you're doing okay with your mental health. Thanks for listening this week. Be sure to rate, like, and share with others. Thank you to those who have shared my episode on social media or have left a review. I appreciate it. A little help goes a long way. Thank you. Be sure to follow me on IG at underscore Dr. Randy. I'll keep you laughing on there just like I do on this podcast. I'm about to go to Waffle House and get an All-American with cheese grits. You know, when you get those cheese grits, they don't even melt the cheese. They just throw that slice of cheese smack dab in the middle of the grits and it doesn't even melt. And we still eat it anyways. I mean, I eat it. I don't know about y'all, but but I eat it anyways. 
<laughs> Once again, thanks for listening. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally. You might not be that physically healthy if you go to Waffle House like me, but it's a cheat day. It's a cheat day. But I'll see you all next week. Girl, I didn't know you could get down like that. Charlie, how your angels get down like that. Girl, I didn't know you could get down like that. Charlie, how your angels... You just couldn't wait to finish singing that song, could you? Nope. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I let you do your part. Said all your little mental health stuff, but I was going to finish singing that song. I hate you in a voice. I really do. I'll see y'all next week. Have a good week, y'all.